You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. Literature is freedom and storytelling is freedom and you can do anything in fiction because it's just imagination, you know, it's a lie. So you can just tell any story you want. Good evening, everyone, and thank you all for being here tonight for this conversation with Bora Chung. I would like to acknowledge that this event is taking place on the land of the Wurundji Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present. When we are thinking about stories, about how stories work, about why stories are vital to our communities, about what stories can say about our very humanity, it's important to remember that the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people were the first storytellers of this place. They are the rightful owners of both this land and the stories here. This event is presented by the Wheeler Center as part of its World of Words series. It is supported by the Melbourne City Revitalization Fund, a Victorian government and City of Melbourne partnership. The official bookseller tonight is Amplify Books, a specialist bookstore that only stocks books written by BIPOC authors. At the end of the event, Bora will be signing books at the back of the room. We will also have an audience Q&A for the last 10 to 15 minutes of the event, so please start thinking of questions for the amazing Bora Chung. So now on to Bora, I'll introduce myself really quickly. My name is Paige Clark and I am a writer and a huge fan of Bora Chung's book, Curse Bunny, and that's all you need to know about me. Um, <laughs> It's true, that's all you need to know about me. But this is Bora Chang. Bora is a writer and translator. Among her works, Curse Bunny, a collection of short stories, has been translated into English and published by Honford Star. Curse Bunny was shortlisted for the International Booker Prize in 2022, and she is currently the president of Science Fiction Writers Union of Korea. So I'm going to begin with a confession, which is that Every time I sat down at my desk to begin thinking about asking questions for you, I found myself just rereading your book. I was trying to do work, make these questions, and I just kept rereading, um, especially the stories Home Sweet Home and Reunion. Um, and as I was reading, I was searching for the answer to the only question I really want to ask you, which is, how the heck did you do this? <laughs> But even though I kept reading and rereading, I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't quite trace your steps. And that's the art of what you do in this book. The craft is so seamless that it's become invisible. It's impossible to pull apart the story from the writing. And that's what I'm going to try to do tonight. So wish me luck, everyone, <laughs> because I've already attempted this at home on my own. We're going to begin with, Bora's going to read for us, and I thought um, just what an honor it is for us to be able to hear this, some of her work in both English and Korean from the writer herself. Um, and I picked the embodiment just because I like it, and I think that that's a good starting point. Um, so I'll hand it over to you, Bora. Um, do you want me to start with the Korean or the English? Maybe the Korean. Let's start from, okay. from how it... How it began. 몸하다. 피가 멈추지 않는다. 생리 12일째. 
보통 3일째를 고비로 양이 줄기 시작하여 5, 6일쯤 끝나곤 했는데 이번에는 2주가 다 돼가는데도 끝날 기미조차 보이지 않는다. 저녁이 되면 양이 줄어들어 드디어 그치려나 싶다가도 아침이 되면 다시 슬금슬금 흘러나온다. 보름째가 되어도 피는 멎지 않았다. 산부인과에 가볼까. 그러나 결혼도 안한 처녀에게 산부인과는 그렇게 마음 가볍게 찾아갈 수 있는 곳이 못된다. 20일이 넘게 피를 흘리자 조금씩 어지럼증이 생기고 늘 피곤하여 일상생활에도 지장을 받기 시작했다. 그녀는 결심하고 산부인과를 찾아갔다. 의사는 별말 없이 그녀의 배에 미끌미끌하고 투명한 물같은 젤리를 잔뜩 바르더니 둥글고 차가운 금속판으로 여기저기 꾹꾹 누르며 흐릿한 흑백 화면을 열심히 들여다보며 중얼거렸다. 별 이상은 없는데... That's the first page, um, or the equivalent of the first page, and I will now read it in English. The embodiment, momada, to body, to menstruate, to undergo menstruation. The bleeding refused to stop. It was 12 days into her cycle. Usually the flow began to lessen around the third day and ended on the fifth, but it was now almost two weeks without any sign of stopping. The flow seemed to taper off at night, but would inevitably return by dawn. A fortnight later, the blood still flowed. Should she see a gynecologist? But the gynecologist's office was not a place a young unmarried woman could visit without feeling oddly guilty. After the 20th day, the dizziness began, and she became so tired that it was starting to affect her daily functioning. She gritted her teeth and went to see a doctor. The gynecologist wordlessly slathered a transparent slip, slip, sorry, slippery gel on her belly and passed a cold metal disc over it. He mumbled as he stared into a foggy black and white display. I don't see anything strange. Thank you so much, Bora. So I, I guess I lied a bit, which was that I also be, wanted you to read the story embodiment because I'm interested in how um, different characters are embodied in the work. So even when, and especially when they're supernatural or even artificial characters, so a lot of the ghosts are very embodied, could you explain this sort of idea of embodiment both in this story and then the work as a whole? Uh, I'll try. <laughs> Um, well, uh, a lot of characters in the in different stories are actual people that I met or I've heard of. Um, like the gynecologist in the embodiment, um, I actually had an ovarian cyst when I was 28, and my period wouldn't stop. Um, and later I found out that it's very common among young women, and some people... Um, don't get their periods, and some people like me um, can't stop bleeding. So it, it, the symptoms vary, but it's a very common um, disease. And uh, my gynecologist was very kind. She was very nice to me, <laughs> for the record. Um, but I thought because she was nice and she was kind to me, I thought maybe I should make her really scary. Because, <laughs> because you know, Hospitals are scary, um, and the guy, the the guy who reads uh, Shakespeare in broken English. Um, this actually happened to my aunt's friend <laughs> when my aunt was young. Um, 
One of her friends had a stalker, but they didn't have the word stalker back then. And back then, nobody had a cell phone. So this guy would like call her at home <laughs> in the evenings and read Shakespeare in broken English <laughs> for days on end. <laughs> So, yeah, that guy actually exists. So, uh, <laughs> so like, reality is weirder. <laughs> Real people are weirder than, than characters in any story. Yeah, so that gets me. Um, the, the event title is Surreal Realities, but in a, many interviews with you, I noticed that you described your work as unreal, and I guess that follows on um, from when you're describing your characters and how you pluck them from real life, but then maybe change them to suit the story. Can you talk a bit more about how you define your work as unreal and how um, you go about writing that? I put the characters under a magnifying glass, especially the characters that I, I don't really like. And I, I kind of uh, magnify or amplify one aspect of them to make them weird or weirder. They are already weird. <laughs> I make them weirder. Um, but when I, when I try to make the story or the plot, I try to find a uh, a direction that is uh, farthest away from reality. So um, the beginning of each story is grounded in my own reality, but I try to make it as unreal as possible. Not surreal, but um, like make it go to a direction that will never happen in reality ever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really sense that with your work, and I know that you're a fan of Polish writer Bruno Schulz, who is probably a surrealist, um, but I do kind of get the sense in your work that it's in conversation um, with Schulz's work. And I guess, how do you borrow you know, from these kind of ideas such as surrealism, but then take it one step further to the unreal? So I guess I'm just, yeah, kind of following on from what you're already talking about. Um, I found my life, I, I still find my life in Korean reality um, mm. incomprehensible, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, so I don't really understand people or the world. Um, so, um, so the stories are, for me, uh, a logical procession. Mm. And when I write, I, I uh, start with the ending. I have a clear ending that um, the story has to um, accumulate to or reach um, as the, the climax. Um, and then I go to the beginning. And then if I, have a, if I have the ending, the first sentence, and the title, then I can write the story. So. Um, in, in my mind, it's just a logical conclusion of, of all the events. Um, so I don't think it's that surreal. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I, I don't either. I get that sense. It's a lot, and maybe that's where the unreal comes in, right? That it's a logical following on from the unreality that you've created. Um, and in that world of the story, it actually has a lot of logic. And I think that's what makes maybe the story so unique. I guess you've brought up your endings and I had some questions about endings. So I'll just jump to them right now because I think you could give an, a masterclass in endings. Um, 
the thing that I find is that each of your stories, it feels inevitable when I get to the end of it, but also surprising. So I kind of found myself thinking, oh, of course, usually it's when I realize a character is a ghost. I'm like, oh, of course it's a ghost. But then at the same time, I'm shocked and blown away and also terrified. Um, so my question is, I know you have the end at the start, but how do you make sure that you give your readers enough breadcrumbs or enough clues along the way that you sort of achieve this sleight of hand where it feels satisfying without being predictable? Um, I just assume that my readers know everything. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't dare give breadcrumbs or anything. Mm -hmm. I just assume that they know from the very beginning. They, and at this day and age, most of the readers have literally seen everything um, mm -hmm. in this day and age of Netflix and YouTube. Um, there's no way I can compete with the visual um, technological advances of, of our era. So I just kind of assume that my readers are up here and I'm down here and I try to satisfy the, the standards. Um, and uh, yeah, I, in terms of, uh, because you said breadcrumbs, um, I'm a huge fan of Agatha Christie and my grandmother was a huge fan of Agatha Christie, so it's, um, it's a family thing. And uh, <laughs> I, I attempted several times to write a detective novel or uh, some kind of detective story, and I just can't. Mm -hmm. um, and the best I can do is, well, the ghost killed him. So, <laughs> so I, I know for a fact that I'm really bad at giving out breadcrumbs, even for myself. Like, I, I just, I could never guess the the bad guy ever, so I can't. Well, I might be, I think I'm one of the readers that are right down here, and I don't know if anyone else in the audience as well, but I think that um, you, manage, you manage to keep us guessing. Thank you. So it's pretty incredible. I'm, I guess I want to keep talking about endings and I guess the short story structure generally because I feel like you have such a mastery of it. Um, you told I me did. not to say this person's name, so you'll have to say it for me after I ask the question. But a Russian theorist, great Russian literary theorist, once said something to the effect of, a short story is like climbing up a hill. Whatever you see on top should be different from what you see at the bottom of the hill. Therefore, in a short story, the ending is the climax. I read The Theory of Prose by him much later in my writing career and felt very happy. This is you in an interview with Clark's World. I've been doing something right at least. Okay, so by the end of the story, you're standing on the top of the hill. How do you go about crafting this story arc? I know that you already know where you're going, um, but what is the journey like up that hill? Is it kind of just seem, like from the start, it's sort of just seamless? How do take us through that process? No, it's never seamless. Um, by the way, the guy's name is Boris Eichenbaum, um, if anybody wants to know. <laughs> I, I never learned how to write. Um, all I know about writing is from translating, from reading other people's works and from translating. Um, so, and I didn't translate that guy. I don't translate theories. Um, it's way too complicated and way too boring. Um, but, uh, I, I take 
like detours a lot when I write my stories and it's never seamless and I uh, disappoint myself a lot. And whenever the story is boring, I dump the scene and start over and try to make it as um, impossible in reality mm. as possible. <laughs> that was not a good sentence, sorry. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I try to go to the opposite direction from, from reality. Any kind of logical procession um, has to go, has to be like twisted, sorry. Um, do you have an example of how you do this in one of your stories? So um, I think I read a bit about perhaps the head, and I know you wrote it a long time ago, <laughs> but um, how you did that process of, I guess, making it unreal or moving it in the opposite direction. Um, so I, I said this at Brisbane Writers' Festival <laughs> a few days ago, so it, it feels kind of awkward to say it again, but okay. Um, <clears throat> So The Head is the very first story I wrote, and it, I wrote it for a literary contest at my university, and there was a prize money, so I wanted the money. And, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I needed to compete with all the Korean majors, so I needed to be really weird or really conspicuous in some way. Um, and I always wanted to write a story about uh, the bathroom, the toilet. Um, so I started with the toilet, I started with the head coming out of the toilet, and then I wrote a whole page of uh, the protagonist, the, the woman, being shocked and freaking out and surprised and, you know, screaming and running out of the bathroom and stuff. And um, I showed it to my sister and she read the whole page and she said, this is boring. Um, so I scrapped it. Um, I like the head. I like the toilet and I, I like the head, <laughs> believe it or not. So I kept the parts. I, I kept them, but um, I made the woman completely indifferent and calm and have no emotional response towards that, that event or phenomena. And from there, the story kind of flowed very naturally. Mm. So that's when I realized, okay, this is the direction I need to go. Mm. But even with that story, this is your first story you've ever written, so we're going, is that, um, is that correct? Yes. So did you already have an ending then, or was that not part of your process yet? Uh, that, I guess the head was an exception. I found the ending um, as I started writing the next scene. So it was mm. the beginning first and then the ending, and mm. I kind of found the rest in the middle mm. later. Um, but yeah, I kept the principle. It's a really great bathroom. I feel I'm, I am not actually a very visual person, but I can see that bathroom, and it is like it's yeah, it's one of it's a great bathroom in literature. So, thank you. Um, let's go back a bit. Speak, continue speaking about literature, but let's go back a bit um, to your work in translation, and then about your book being translated itself. So you have a master in Russian and Eastern European studies from Yale and PhD in Slavic literature from Indiana University. This is why you're helping me with the pronunciations. Um, but how does your understanding of Slavic literature and classical ideas about storytelling influence your writing? I know you said that you know, you've you never learned how to be a writer except through your reading, um, but I'm sure that this informs your work in some way. 
Um, Slavic people are generally crazy. <laughs> they are amazingly talented, just un incredibly creative, and they're all crazy. <laughs> and um, as I studied the uh, period right after the communist revolution, um, it was a very strange period, both in Russia and in Poland. In Russia, um, anything and everything was possible. They had just um, taken down the empire, like literally they took down, took down the empire and literally, literally built a new society. So anything that was different from the classics from the 19th century were hailed as the new and the fresh and the advanced and the improved. And uh, Poland, on the, on the other hand, uh, found independence after 120 years of being the part of the Russian Empire. So um, they were enjoying the best years of their modern history. Um, freedom, finally, independence, um, and the freedom of speech, freedom of expression especially. So everybody went crazy and tried to do something new that was different from whatever their classics were. And um, so I saw so many uh, new and different and beautiful techniques that were tried, experimented, um, dumped or developed in that era, and also that that joy of doing something creative, joy of art, joy of making something beautiful and new, um, that is unparalleled, I think, in, in human history. And um, I want to express that, the joy of reaching something that was unreachable in the past. And I know that my book is not very joyful. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> but just the, the spirit of experimenting and trying to find something new, um, even that is not pretty in the classical sense, mm -hmm. but if it's satisfactory for me, then I would go for it. Um, I learned that freedom. That, that literature is freedom and storytelling is freedom and you can do anything in fiction because it's just an imagination, you know, mm -hmm. it's a lie. So you can just tell any story you want. Wow, I think I really feel that joy when I read your book because I had You too? <laughs> I do, I, I feel, and I think maybe that comes through in the humor and the play um, and in that freedom. So I guess I want to, you know, you're naturally a very funny person. The book is very funny. Um, how do you go Thank about you. sort of inserting these, it's almost, I don't know if it, it's not a comedic release, but how does humor play out in your writing process? Um, you either laugh or you cry and die. <laughs> <laughs> and you know there's a lot of crying and dying in the book as well um, yeah I guess they failed to laugh <laughs> sorry <laughs> um. <laughs> sorry see you're still making me laugh um, thinking again about 
you know, your, your work in translation. Uh, how does reading writers in Polish or Russian and then writing yourself in Korean, how do you think it changes your writing, um, I guess following on from that, besides just, you know, the joy and that freedom? Um, you know, does the sort of, obviously the story structure or the language choices, how does that impact your writing? And do you potentially see the act of writing itself as an act of translation at all? Um, the last question mm. I can answer readily, yes, um, mm. because I wrote uh, one and a half research paper. <laughs> so yeah, I co-authored a research paper on that topic, and then I wrote a research paper on that separate topic. So yeah, the answer is yes. And it's not just me saying it, it's uh, Yuri Lotman and um, uh, Julia Kresteva and all the other big names say the same thing, that um, language, the act of speech and the act of writing are all acts of translation. You're translating your own thoughts into, mm. into language, whether it's your mother tongue or something else. And um, I forgot the first two questions. <laughs> what were they? Well, I guess it kind of ties in into that, which is that in that act of, I guess, expressing your thoughts, um, how does your knowledge of these other language impact your writing um, in your Polish mother tongue? And, Polish and Russian grammar um, permanently screwed up my Korean. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I've been teaching, well, I, I quit teaching, so I had been teaching um, Russian for 12 years. And uh, just like thinking about Russian grammar is so ingrained um, in me that when I write in Korean, I think of Russian grammar or Polish grammar, especially when I'm translating something um, from those languages. So uh, my Korean sounds really weird, I guess. It, it sounds natural to me, but my editors complain a lot that this is not the way you say it in Korean. And I'm like, that is, that's gonna be the way I say it. Like, I, I have to say it that way. Um, and I, yeah, my editors don't like it. But um, I guess Anton liked it, and he put me on the shortlist uh, uh, for the International Booker Prize last year, so I don't have any complaints. Mm. It worked out beautifully. Um, and actually, Anton, told me a lot of times that he likes my sentences because they are very translatable. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess uh, being screwed up in my Korean grammar helps. <laughs> so do I you guess... think, because you, you are fluent in English as well, when you read it in English, do you think so that's all there, like all those layers, so the, the bad Korean sentences from the Russian influence, and then now it's been easily translated into English? Um, when I see my own work in Korean, the original, I see all the holes and the seams and the creases, mm -hmm. um, and, and not just grammatically, but the, the uh, seams uh, between the real characters and the real stories that I heard or experienced or mm -hmm. saw um, in real life and the parts where I just imagined or just came up with something because I had to move to the next scene. And I don't see that in Anton's translation. Um, it's probably because he's a reader and he didn't, he didn't participate in that journey with me, like mm. coming up with some absurd story to move to the next scene. <laughs> 
um, and and it just testifies to the to his ability as a translator. So, before speaking with the Wheeler Center, you said in an interview that it's always wise to trust your translator, and it's obvious that you do. But what excited you about the process of being translated? And I know you've sort of touched on it, but following on from that, what did you discover about your own writing through reading your work in another language? And has that discovery changed your writing process? Um. I consciously don't think it changed my writing process, but it, maybe it did. Um, I mostly envy Anton, like I'm jealous. How, how does he know what I'm trying to say? <laughs> I don't even know what I'm trying to say. He, he seems to know what I'm trying to say. So um, I asked him once, and uh, he just looked at me like, oh, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and, um, uh, and uh, I didn't meddle with his process. Um, Anton is a native speaker of Korean, and so I didn't have to explain anything to mm -hmm. him, and his English is better than his Korean, so, um, which uh, was proven by his double booker <laughs> long list last year. Um, so um, I just completely trusted him, and frankly, I. I'm still amazed that somebody as good as Anton wanted to translate my stories. Um, when the book came out in 2017, like it didn't sell, and there was there was no reader response ever. Like, nobody was interested. Nobody bought my books, and I was kind of used to it. So, you know, I'm still shocked that people are reading my book. <laughs> Can you tell us about what happened in 2018, though, on Twitter when when someone had? <laughs> Had read your book? Um, you mean the person who recommended Chris Bunny to me? <laughs> yes, yes. I think everyone here wants to hear about that. <laughs> yeah. In 2018, I was pretty active on Twitter. Um, and it, all my tweets were in Korean. So I hope you don't ever get to find out what I wrote on Twitter. <laughs> and I quit Twitter <laughs> some years ago. So I'm gone. But back then, I was pretty active. And this one person um, recommended that I read Chris Bunny because they thought I would like it. <laughs> and, and they didn't know that I wrote it. But that was, the, that was the greatest compliment I had. Like, this person. This person followed me on Twitter for several years, and they thought I would like it. And they, they had a pretty good feeling about me. <laughs> so I guess, um, yeah, and, and they were right to like it. Um, so and I have to add, this yes. was the time when nobody read my book. So. <laughs> And they actually read my book and liked it and recommended it back to me. So, no, this was a big deal. I'm very grateful. And now there's a whole room full of people that like your book. Thank um, you. That we don't know how to reach you on Twitter and we'll never be able to. <laughs> so, going back to the book itself, Curse Bunny has been described as a book about revenge. Though when I read it, and I reread it, and reread it, as you all know, I understood the book not to be about revenge itself, but about revenge as a form of collective memory or trauma, as a form of not forgetting. Can you talk about the interplay of both in the book, revenge and collective trauma? 
um, which one? Mm-hmm. I, I didn't set out to be this vengeful, vengeful writer. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I don't specialize in curses. <laughs> By the way, the, the curses in the book are just all made up. There is no bunny curse tradition in Korea. <laughs> so you can try this at home, but nothing's, nothing's going to happen. <laughs> uh, um, uh, all, as I said, all my stories are somehow related to reality, and some of the things in the stories actually happened, like this um, ban on uh, rice wine actually happened in Korea in the 1960s and 70s um, during the military dictatorship because this particular military dictator who was assassinated at the end of his reign um, <clears throat> for good reason too. Um, <laughs> he wanted Korea to be able to um, like provide, uh, he wanted Korea to be self-sufficient in food, in terms of food. So he banned um, all the rice products except for table rice. Um, so like these traditional breweries that used to uh, make traditional uh, Korean rice wine for 400 years, 500 years, they became illegal <laughs> overnight. And the ban went on for 12 years, so they had to like make traditional rice moonshine <laughs> for the next decade, which is absurd. Um, but that situation is resolved now, so I thought it would be safe to use that historical mm-hmm. episode because now it's just an episode. And in Korea now, um, traditional uh, rice wine is protected by the government, so um, they're safe. So those kind of things. Um, I thought it's worth remembering, and um, there is there is an element of criticizing a dictatorship, um, oppressive policy, um, unrealistic oppressive policy, and uh, capitalism as well. And I guess that's kind of, I mean, it's probably a collective trauma that we're all still living through. So I guess that that's something that the book looks at as well. Um, I know you love the genre of horror and consider yourself a writer of speculative fiction. Um, I'm interested in your notions of genre and your, you know, you're involved in the science fiction. I'm go back to it. The president of the Science Fiction Writers Union of Korea. So I'm interested in your notions of genre and how genre provides opportunities for you as a writer. Um, how does genre serve as a useful or unuseful constraint? Um, uh, genre fiction is what I discovered while studying Russian literature too, like Nikolai Gogol and his nose and his overcoat, um, all of his absurd and funny stories. Um, just, and these are like typical genre fiction. Somebody wakes up without his nose in the morning and a guy who, uh, this government official, very low ranking government official is obsessed with getting a new coat and then he dies and then he becomes, he comes back, comes back as a ghost to like rob people of their overcoats. <laughs> and these stories are taught in every single Russian literature class as 
one of the classics, of one of the best stories of Russian literature, the highest point of Russian literature, the golden age. And I truly, genuinely enjoyed them. And I found out that I could write these stories. These stories could be really good, like horror and fantasy and um, imaginative, speculative fiction, whatever you label it. Um, they could be very useful tools for making a really good story. And Russians seem to think, uh, Slavic people sim seem to not differentiate uh, that sternly between realism and non-realistic stories. So like, because it's somebody's imagination, you know, whatever happens, it's somebody's Somebody's uh, made up the story, so whatever goes on, it's from that person's imagination. So why does it have to stick to reality? Mm -hmm. um, I like that kind of thinking. Yeah, I think that that really comes across in your book, like all those influences, but also I guess that goes back to this idea of, of joy or freedom. Um, and, you know, I had a question here that you started writing to win money because you wanted to win the contest. So yes. then my follow-up question that was, why do you keep writing? Because we, those of us that are writers in the room know that it's probably not, not for the money. Um, I like writing. I found an outlet um, to, I guess, explain uh, the world to myself because I still find the world very confusing. Um, yeah. And uh, sometimes I, I get a lot of ideas from news, re news reports or documentaries or films or um, all other media. And sometimes a news report or a, some other person's story makes me really angry or sad or I have a very strong emotional response. And I think about it and I think about how uh, to right the wrong. Yeah, I guess I am vengeful. <laughs> or I get really upset and I start thinking, if this goes on for like something like climate change, if this goes on for another 50 years or 70 years, then the world is going to be very different from what we know. And um, I start imagining that world. And there is a story right there. And that is what your next book cycle is you're working on does deal with climate change. Can you tell us a bit about that? Um, I have so many deadlines. Which one? <laughs> mm. um, I'm writing about sea creatures. That is my closest deadline. Um, it actually started out as a, a, a short story about labor issues um, because I married my union leader. <laughs> And we protested a lot together. We protest a lot together. And um, he eats, um, he is, he's from the Eastern seaside of Korea and he eats um, an imaginable amount of seafood. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that humans ate octopus before I married him. <laughs> I thought like humans lived in land and octopus lived in the sea and we lived separate like happy lives. Uh, and I found out that humans actually like kill and eat octopus, poor octopus. Um, and uh, so I wrote a story about 
an, oct an alien octopus like appearing in front of our protest camp. <laughs> and then my husband eats it. <laughs> because he eats octopus. <laughs> and my husband was very happy with it, so I wrote the sequel and then the sequel to the sequel, and now I have to write a book. So it's a love story. Uh, I guess, because well, in the first short story, I'm not married to him. I ju I'm just in love with him. And the second story, we are married. So yeah, it is kind of a love story, but there are sea creatures that are fighting Putin. <laughs> and mind you, I wrote this in 2021 before he invaded Ukraine. So he, need a, he needs to die like yesterday. <laughs> And yeah, um, Slava Ukraini. And, um, and then I wrote about uh, a shark and because in his home region, people eat shark too. Yeah, we eat shark here as yeah, well. Yeah, human beings eat everything. <laughs> and yeah, it's a scary thought. I've actually got a fear of fish, so I think that this... Um, book is going to be right up my alley or it's going to be my worst night like but that's what I want it to be I'm hearing your voice a fear of deadlines yes. um so do you use deadlines to motivate you writing yes definitely <laughs> me too um I just we've got very little time um I still have so I don't know I haven't figured out anything I think the only thing I figured out is that I need Anton her to translate my book from English to English to do what you do um but other than that I've learned so much from you I guess my final question before we turn it over to the audience um is that in Clark's World magazine you mentioned that your earlier collections had sexier stuff about women trapping and killing men and then later in the interview you stated and I also think I'm becoming mellower. I like my earlier stories better because they are stronger. This self-critique or assessment resonated with me. Um, how do you think your attachment to your previous writing selves helps your writing process? How does it hinder you? Um. Well, after the Booker shortlist happened last year, um, it started to hinder me a lot. Mm. I, I found myself comparing every single word I wrote to Curse Bunny. Is it as good as Curse Bunny? Is it uh, worse than Curse Bunny? Is it better than Curse Bunny? And um, I started like obsessing over it, and it didn't help. And mm. then I... Uh, it, when that happens, I try to remember that um, I started writing in 1998 and nobody ever read any of my stories until Anton. Um, no, so, some people read my stories, but <laughs> I was a very happy no-name writer uh, for about 20 years. And I wrote for myself. Um, I try to remember that, but also at the same time, um, since I started protesting and met my husband and um, learned a lot about minority rights and saw started to see some answers to my confusion. Um, I'm no longer confused and I cannot go back to being confused. Mm -hmm. So the emotions are less uh, strong and less um, compact. Um, compared to the stories in Curse Bunny, because some 
some of the questions I already found the answer, mm -hmm. and I'm no longer as angry or confused. Um, and I think uh, confused Bora wrote better. <laughs> but that is in the past. I think we'll just have to wait for Anton to do his magic. So all those of us in the room can read the next book. So we're all hanging out for that. I think now it might be a good segue to turn it over to the audience for anyone that has a question. Oh no, somebody has a question. <laughs> <laughs> it's either questions from them or questions from me, so. Um, my question was um, sort of around genre and um, emotions. Um, Paige spoke about uh, genre, you know, how you write speculative fiction, horror and so on. Um, when you're thinking about horror, when you're writing a story, do you intend to um, kind of evoke certain emotions for the reader, you know, fear or dread or revulsion or do you not really think about it and you kind of write intuitively or think about what scares you? Uh, the emotion is uh, the goal. So I'm trying to, that is part of the message. I don't like that word message, but if I'm, if there is a message in any of my stories, the emotion is the message that I'm trying to convey that the world can be a funny place, a scary place, an absurd place, um, and human beings are uh, capable of feeling all the spectrum of all the colors of all the emotions, maybe at the same time too. Um, and like one experience does not have to match like this emotion and that emotion. It, it can be very complex. Um, so if, if I, succeeded in that, I think I did a decent job. And thank you for that question. For me, you definitely did succeed. Okay, I've got one final question for Bora then. And this is for my sake, because Bora and I were speaking backstage and we discussed that Bora does not like editing, does not like the editorial process, yeah. which I love. Um, but I know you must have some editorial process. So after you finish writing, what happens next? I revise and revise and revise like crazy. I obsess over every single letter uh, for about three days. And then that's usually um, when I find myself like changing the comma to a period and then changing the period back to a comma. <laughs> and then that's when I realized, okay, for my own sanity's sake, I need to stop. Um, that's when I stop. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing with us, Bora. We've loved having you. Um, just a re reminder that Bora's book, Cursed Bunny, is on sale with Amplify Books at the back of that room, and she'll be signing books. So thank you all again for joining us this evening. And thank you, Bora. Thank you. Thank you, thank you for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to Paige Clark in conversation with Bora Chung, recorded on Wednesday the 17th of May 2023 at the Wheeler Centre as part of the World of Words series. This event was supported by the Melbourne City Revitalisation Fund, a Victorian Government and City of Melbourne partnership. 
The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.